You're listening to an Irreverent Podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends. Hi, friends. Sarah here with a brief disclaimer. You are listening to a podcast about making space for other people as well as for yourself, which may mean that you're going to hear language and ideas and thoughts, not just about life, but about faith that are different than your own. My hope is that you will listen to this podcast with an attitude of space making, being able to hear things that are different from what you may interpret the world to be. It also may be different than how the hosts feel about the world. But again, we are working together to make a little bit more space for each other. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Making Spaces podcast, a podcast about making space for yourself, both literally and figuratively. I'm one of the hosts, Sarah, and this is the other host, Josie. And uh, we are recording in the gray, which as Californians, it's very confusing for us. Uh, it rained yesterday, um, which was, I would say, unnerving. No, actually, we need the rain a lot, so it was good to have it. But it was very strange because I don't think it was in the forecast at all. I texted you and was like, what is happening? What is actually happening from the sky? Yeah, I think it was like leftover fog that just crumpled up into each other or something. I don't know if it was actually rain. <laughs> Everyone who <laughs> weather doctors <laughs> yeah. meteorologists right now are like, that is not how that works. Um, <laughs> it is so good to see you this morning. How are you doing? Um, I feel like every week I'm just going to be like, I hurt. This morning I woke up in a lot of pain, um, which is really just signaling that I have to actually take my medicine as prescribed. <laughs> oh, yes. I have this weird thing about not wanting to build up a tolerance because my mom took a lot of painkillers and then I kept having to take more and more because she would take them too often. Oh, yeah. And so I'm just like, no, thank you. I don't know. That's really not what's going to happen if I take things as prescribed, but whatever. I kind of get that. Actually, I do get that. I have the same thing about antibiotics because I grew up, mm. um, you know, being told that they're overprescribed and they are overprescribed. But mm. I tend to, when the doctor gives me antibiotics, my immediate reaction is to call my dad and go, is this what I need to take? Do I need to take this? Um, yeah. And I also, I'm the same with painkillers. I try to figure out how long I can last because I don't want my body to get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah. far, if you're listening, you've learned that we are not meteorologists or physicians. That's so far what you've learned. I mean, I was going to make a joke, but no, I'm really not a physician. <laughs> <laughs> um, and actually, this this whole intro really does tie into our conversation um, with Stephanie Tate. I was just re-listening to it. And friends, I'm excited for you to hear just the, I don't know, I think it's just such a deep conversation around how we often try to make everything um, serve a purpose and how that can actually create an ableist language. Like you're only as good as you are um, usable and, mm. and within these certain definitions. And so um, Stephanie did this whole interview from within her garden um, and her garden as sort of this beautiful metaphor for sometimes you just need things to be and they don't need to serve a purpose. So I'm really looking forward to people hearing this conversation. There's some really good quotes out of it. Is there anything you want to say before we hop into this convo? Um, if you're not yet vaccinated, get vaccinated. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I think folks know that. About, about, yeah, we talk a lot about um, 
Stephanie and I both have our own battles with chronic illness. Mm. Um, pretty similar, although hers, I would say, are a little bit more um, not extreme. I mean, they're very different, right? Lyme disease is kind of a whole different ball game than it's its own thing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, than fibromyalgia or whatever it is that I have. So yeah, I would listen with uh, open hands, kind hearts for yourself mostly it's pretty heavy but i think it's a good conversation to have especially coming out of this covid pandemic allegedly allegedly we're coming out of it i don't believe it oh, i thought you were gonna say the pandemic was alleged and i was gonna say josie oh, no, this no, no, changes no. everything <laughs> we are allegedly coming out of it until yeah. herd immunity is reached i believe nothing <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's i feel like a lot of times people forgot the faces behind the numbers of people that died yeah. or had the potential to die or like people are like oh only one percent of people are gonna die and do you understand what one percent of seven eight billion is that's yeah, a lot of freaking people but whatever there was no, a really whatever. powerful yeah. moment yesterday i'm so i'm in the midst of um one of the reasons we had to actually record early this morning is i'm in the midst of our three-day annual conference meetings and there was a powerful moment where our bishop called for people to put the names of people they actually knew who had passed from COVID. And it was, I think, really helpful to see the names um, in real time go up. And I think that's it's what it's going to take. We have to sort of personalize things. And I think that's the beauty of, um, and I hope what we are trying to do with the podcast is really help people have faces for different spaces and spaces for different um yeah, whatever it might be. Like, this is what, when you talk about this quote unquote issue or, or thing, this is a, a face behind because we all need a story that goes along with it. And I think that's the, the beauty of um, Stephanie in some ways. She has this moment where she says, you know, I think every theology needs to have some skin on it. So that's, that's this, right? What we believe about other people is what we believe about the divine or or even if you don't believe in the divine, it's how do you believe in the humanity of others? So enjoy this conversation. And Josie, take your meds. <laughs> All right, enjoy the conversation, friends. I'm the most seven, seven there is. And so for Enneagram nerds, you know, I don't like to just sit in those feelings. I hate it, <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't do that. So normally I have to find a way to like, I'm doing something about the problem, right? I'm out there speaking on it. I'm, I'm holding a group, like we're doing a thing. Couldn't, <laughs> couldn't during COVID. I wasn't right. allowed to do that. So I had to sort of sit back and go, what does resistance look like when you can't march in the streets with everyone else? You can't start a group, you can't do a thing. You know, you can yell into the void on Twitter only so much before that starts draining you too, because you never know if it's getting anywhere and it's, and so it's been this weird year of me learning just how much sort of seasons of rest and seasons of creating like seemingly frivolous things are 
an act of resistance in and of themselves, right? Like I felt so guilty for a while that I had growing food too before. And most of those beds have now just been taken over by flowers because I have all kinds of flowers that I wanted to grow for these arrangements that I make now. And in the beginning I thought, what a waste, right? Like we're in a pandemic for crying out loud and you're taking out food plants and you're putting in flowers. Like those are not useful. Like how can you justify that? And yet it's been such a process this year of learning that sometimes just creating space for beauty, right? Mm -hmm. And finding a way to channel that energy into something that doesn't seemingly serve a practical, pragmatic purpose. That's such an act of resistance in and of itself. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Making Spaces podcast, a podcast about making space for yourself and others. I'm one of the co-hosts, Sarah, and this is... The other co-host, again, for another time, Josine. <laughs> um, we are excited today to welcome our friend, Stephanie, who... Stephanie Tate is a author. She is a speaker. She is one hell of a Twitter user. She's also an advocate uh, that talks about what it means to make sure that we are avoiding ableism, how we're thinking about being um, really conscious of folks around us who are experiencing disability. And so she is also someone who does disability consulting and speaking in that field. And so I'm so excited because she is a huge space maker. And I think we have all the same friends. So I think this is just, kind of, yeah. yeah, this was just meant <laughs> to be. So I'm so excited to have her on here. And um, something we're going to open up with asking the question that we ask everybody, which is, which, where is one of your favorite spaces and why? Well, I have always been a pretty avid gardener, but um, with the pandemic, you know, being super high risk and having those added high risk factors, my family had to isolate a lot more than most people. So for 420 something days, uh, we pretty much couldn't leave our house at all. Like we couldn't go to the grocery store. We couldn't do the things that a lot of people could do. And so my garden kind of took over my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you guys are listening to this on the podcast and not watching the YouTube, you are missing out on perhaps (laughs) even your like tools are in like a beautiful. That's just like the back, like that's the side of my house. Like the really good stuff is on the other side where you can't see, but it would take me probably 45 minutes to walk you through it all. It's huge. Oh my gosh. I love that. It's out of control. It's out of control. And so the garden. um, That's my sanctuary. That's where I live. That's where it's no exaggeration as, you know, wonky as it'll sound to say that the flowers saved my life this last year. So Mm. having that ability to put my hands in the dirt and ground myself in my body. Um, more than that, having the ability to track time passing, right. In a really tangible way when every day blurred together in isolation, but I knew time was passing because I could see the changes in the garden. Right. Like I knew tulips were done and the roses were starting and I knew that the roses were done and the mums were coming in the fall and I could see the perennials dying back and like the list of the jobs to do to prep for winter set in and like you know time is passing because you have your hands in it right like you feel it in a tangible way and you're grounded in that and that was such an anchor in a time where everything else was just a blur Mm. I think that's beautiful I have never um I've never thought about that 
um, since moving to California, um, I've had a couple of conversations with folks about how, um, and no offense, jo Josie is like an Angelina, but um, I have noticed that in California in general, people are more immature. And I had this whole conversation. I'm a former Californian, so yeah. it's okay. You can say that. <laughs> and, and, and just like life experiences. And some of it has to do with availability of moving out when you're young. Like, so Josie moved out yep. when she was 17, but some people didn't, don't have that option, right? So they don't experience some of the things that um, kind of have a maturation about them. So paying bills or things like that. So when I moved here at 24, my friends who were 24, very different life experiences than yeah. maybe I had even had. And so some of those things that kind of help with adults' um, decisions and, you know, however we want to measure that. Um, and I found it really interesting. And I was at, at one night at a bar talking with a, another girl about how guys in general were, were more immature here than they are in other places. And um, this bartender who was like just sitting, like making a mixologist really, she stopped and she said, I think it's because they don't have seasons. And I, Whoa. and I thought about it and I was like, tell me more. And she's like, I I've been thinking about this a lot. She goes, you know, with some of the guys I work with, she's like, I think because they never know the passing of time, it's not like in their body because the seasons don't change in the way that seasons change mm. everywhere else where you kind of have that like seasonal understanding. Like, unless you like curate a garden yourself, you're not actually experiencing the passage of time. She said, I don't think they're, they have within their experience the fact like yeah they've got like christmas as a marker or that kind of thing but there's there's something about watching things die and come back mm. to life she said i think that causes people to be a little bit less um like aware of their own um passing of age now was that true i don't know but that was like one of those moments where you're like you wow woman at a bar and you know that's impressive and it's just it has wisdom a, bomb in the middle of nowhere wisdom but I think too about like I grew up with a like a full garden my my parents grew actually a lot of our food and mm. I think about how it was pea season or it was you know all these different things and I didn't I'm I have a black thumb I, I say that I'm a hospice caregiver for plants I welcome them into their next um, stage of life um, their next essence of being uh, Josie's partner, Ryan, he, uh, he is gracious when I yell, like, what did I do to this? Um, and I think one of the things that grew up was like, I have never thought about how that was like a, a passing of time and what that might be mean for like something during a pandemic. Like I, that's just beautiful, beautiful. I've never thought about it. Uh, as an Angelino, I love it. I hate seasons. I don't like them. <laughs> I don't want snow. I like my California weather. <laughs> it was an adjustment when we moved from, we, I'm originally from like the San Francisco Bay area most mm. of my life. And then we moved to Oregon six, seven years ago now. I think it was about six years ago. I don't remember. Uh, and it was an adjustment having seasons. That's mm. for sure. Um, I was not used to it. And this Californian was wildly unprepared. Um, <laughs> there's I like unprepared own, and like, there's wildly unprepared. <laughs> real rain boots. So I thought you could just go down to the Walmart and buy like $15 galoshes and like, if it doesn't work in a state with actual rain. Um, I had like a jacket, right? It was like my one jacket. I think the hardest lesson I learned when I moved to Oregon is water resistant and uh, waterproof are very... not the same thing. <laughs> So I look like a drowned rat all the time and I was always underdressed and like didn't have enough layers or overdressed and didn't have enough layers I could strip off because I just I agree like California I just had no seasons. This was new. 
Mm. This yeah. was new. But I, just think I, it- I've come to depend on it. Like, it's mm-hmm. just, you're right. Like you feel time passing. I'm so much more aware of like the phases my kids go through because it's different. Like I can remember the time of the year because there's those clear markers that just ground you into the earth and into your body. And I, I can't imagine going back now. Mm. Yeah. It's an interesting thing. And it's like, it's not meant to even be like a, a rude thing. Josie's very proud of California, which I think is great. I, I love I'm a very lot of proud places. of a Los Angeles. Sorry. She's Parts of proud. California. I don't really. Right. <laughs> we she... want to talk about like Bakersfield. Or- mm. no, she does not identify as a Bakersfield. <laughs> her identity is not that. Um, her pronouns are LA. Um, like, she just loves it there so much. Um, and I think that there's unless you've experienced it or unless you are grew up in it, it's just a different vibe. Like I grew up by the water. I grew up in a place that had four definite seasons. And I think Mm. I didn't realize how much it affected me. And and like I said, I never thought about it until that bartender was like, yeah, I think people here don't realize they're aging. And she didn't mean it like a, like there was not a judgment and almost the way she was saying it was just like, I've noticed since I've moved here, the time doesn't have delineations. And I think about that when we had to create rhythms and patterns during something like a pandemic. So it makes sense to me that you would be in the, like creating space almost for yourself, like time and space in this garden, these things die. And it almost becomes a pattern too, of like, Hey, things go away and new things come up. It's like a, you know, I think there's a reason why a lot of monks garden. Mm. I mean, other than just to feed each other, but, um, (laughs) Zevi, Thank you so much for doing us and for um, kind of being willing to sort of uh, have some tough conversations this year. I've noticed you've had a lot of conversations around what does ableism look like in a time when we're starting to really notice how there's an intersectionality as we make space for um, all kinds of understandings of difference and how we might have missed things before. Has there been a particular thing as you think through this that um has come to light more in this last year or year and a half Ooh. now, guys. <laughs> Sorry, that was a really um, big question. So, yeah. so tell me about your soul right now. No, I'm just <laughs> well, and it's a tough question to answer because I have very conflicting feelings around this. I think we do have a lot of the same friends. And so a lot of the people that I know are very justice oriented in general. Mm. Um, and so for a long time, it's been frustrating to watch sort of a pattern of, there's a lot of different types of diversity that were really important to some of these spaces and disability was just sort of not on the list. Um, and then the pandemic hit. And so for people like that, who are pretty justice focused, it definitely became easier to find examples to show people what ableism looks like in real time and also to communicate the urgency of like, this is not just sort of privileged people play acting marginalization, right? This is not like a side niche issue. This is life and death for a big part of our population. And that became glaringly apparent in the last year and really easy to communicate to people who have that sort of mindset. But on the flip side, it was really hard. I don't know how to like 
fully communicate and quantify how difficult it was to see that like from jumpstart in the pandemic, the dialogue shifted almost immediately to don't worry, this only kills those kinds of people. So it's Ooh. no biggie. Yeah. Or like we shouldn't have to shut down our life if it's only going to kill those people anyways, because you know, those people don't really count. So let's just go back to life. Uh, good news, everyone mission accomplished. Like that's the dichotomy of that, right? Like that some of my justice friends were really starting to clue in and go, I see it now. Like I see right. the way that we're walking this out and the way that you're right. And yet on the flip side, the majority of the population where you would have hoped that this would have been like a once in a lifetime opportunity to really get people to see things differently in a way that is rare, that didn't so much happen. Instead, it was just a very much a double down on the kind of systemic ableism we've always known. And they very quickly decided it just doesn't matter if those people die as long as I don't have to wear a mask to Trader Joe's. So <laughs> it's, it's hard to communicate like how dehumanizing it is to hear that rhetoric day in, day out, because it doesn't matter how much I know what I know. When you hear it again and again and again and again, it gets to you. We're not we're not designed to be an island, right? Where I just, I just tell myself the right things. And as long as I know it, I'm good. And I'm confident in it. And no matter how much we talk that big game, it doesn't work that way. We're wired for community, like neurobiologically, we're wired to believe that we're safer doing what everyone around us is doing, because that used to be true, right? You wanted mm -hmm. to stay with your actual tribe and that was the safest thing to do. So it's not unusual that no matter how much you think you know what you know, when literally everyone around you is behaving differently, when every person around you is saying, this is what's true, it does get to you. It gets to you. It's hard. It's hard for it not to. Yeah. And it wasn't, I think the shocking thing too was um, kind of the the narrative that uh, I grew up thinking about Americans is they really liked their elderly people because like World War II stuff and like all this sort of like um, heroic nature of those folks who are elders and like language around that, right? Like I just, you know, and then um, it was interesting too how it wasn't just our, you know, folks who had compromised immune systems. It was also like, well, you know, they've lived a good life and it was like, what? what is what did we just quantify life like because it could you imagine had there been a mass shooting at a nursing home it would have been yeah. the everyone that they would have the yeah. heroes here are the heroes we're going to hear all of their stories I mean, everyone would have changed their profile picture right they would have had some happy banner and we all would have had a you know right a whole profile picture for a day or whatever right yet, uh, in this context no one cared Right. It was very, because almost like it, like the numbers were so big, it was hard for people to hold on to the, um, hold on to it. And I understand that. And I think it's, um, there, I don't understand it. I, I understand where it comes from, but I think there's yeah. this interesting thing too, we do where we lump people in to like, this is what it's like. I know for, for me, the fear was so high because so many people in my life are immunocompromised and like, there wasn't an opportunity to go like, I got a great health system. So I'll just go out and, you know, do whatever, because there was, I, my biggest fear was getting someone 
I cared about sick, mm-hmm. um, knowing that yes, my body might function differently. And I, I might just be one of the lucky great do okay ones. Um, so many folks around me that just wasn't the case. And that was just so scary. Actually, Josie in the midst of our pandemic times found out that her immune system is not, uh, functioning very well at all. Well, still up for debate actually, but (laughs) I, um, have had really bad, uh, muscular and nerve pain for a few years now. And I, I mean, you don't really get a diagnosis when it comes to that. And eventually I did get the diagnosis of fibromyalgia, which is, what does that even mean? Right. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, the pandemic for me was very scary because I can't even cough too hard without having really debilitating consequences, let alone Mm -hmm. a disease that we don't even know what it does. Um, Yeah, I, I have a similar feeling about the pandemic in that it was hard for me to see people be selfish. Mm-hmm. And I always go towards my initial response is always anger. I was very angry for a lot of the pandemic at people who, I mean, I had an uncle, my dad's best friend who passed away from COVID because he had just had a kidney transplant. And I mean, by all intents and purposes, other than that, he was pretty young and doing all right. He had recovered really well. And then I think of like all the people in line who caused my uncle to die and I just get angry or even some of my family members. I mean, in Mexico, it's a whole different level. Nobody cares about COVID in Mexico, but then seeing like my cousins go visit my grandma who is 80 something years old, not wearing masks. They don't social distance. They don't care. And I'm like the level of selfishness that I saw in the world and then the level of politic- politicization, can't speak. Um, in I can't America. say that word like yeah. first thing in the morning, had my <laughs> yeah. coffee. And I can, that's one of those yep. words you'll notice I never put into the sermon because I can't <laughs> say it. Yep. <laughs> but like the level of people saying like, this is a liberal hoax and mm. this is that and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, y'all don't really have a larger worldview if you think that this is an American politics issue. It was hard um, as somebody who has has to come to terms with having some level of disability. I don't like I'm still wrestling with that um, to see people not care. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a it's a personal attack, right? Like whether like you said earlier, you don't want to you 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 do have self-talk and I think the self mantras are important and it's important to say, I know my value. I know I'm of worth, but again, when there's these generalizations or like open everything up or like our kids, I should choose whether I get or not, I get vaccinated. I had a, I was really upset. My mom has um, a four-time cancer survivor and has um, immune issues and all kinds of stuff. And um, they had an outbreak at the hospital where my, my dad is still a, um, director of a nursing home at 70. Um, I'm sorry, not of a nursing home, of a um, hospice care center and of an Alzheimer's unit. And turns out most likely the outbreak that they have is a virulent uh, variant, sorry, a variant based on um, the fact that only 22% of their staff will get vaccinated. Oh my God. And I wasn't ready to be so mad, even though both my parents have been vaccinated for a really long time. The truth is a variant, we don't know what a variant 
will do to someone who has already. And even like the language I noticed around whenever someone would die, people would say, well, what was their pre-existing condition? As if a pre-existing condition then sets you up to somehow your life is like the value system is just, and I understand what we're trying to do is protect ourselves from that. What can I do for that to never happen to me? And if Mm. I can other the people who that happens to, then it can't happen to me. And that is absolutely opposite of space making for people, for, for wholeness, for health, for like, and so girl, I I understand why you dug a garden. (laughs) Just like, yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, especially, oh, sorry, you go. That anger, right? That anger was a big part of why I think the garden became as over the top as it is now because <laughs> I don't apologize for the anger that I feel because it's, it's valid. It's justified. It's very real. We're talking about throwing human lives under the bus for the sake of some personal comfort. Like that's anger is valid. And I don't want to lose touch with those feelings because that means, you know, when I stop feeling that anger, it means I've grown cynical. Um, and yet on the flip side, when it was just day in, day out, right. And there was nothing else to distract me. There was nothing else to do. Um, I wasn't able to go out there and like guest preach at churches or speak in places, right? Like I couldn't do anything about this anger. It really left me in a place where I am I'll call my crap out. I'm the most seven, seven there is. And so for Enneagram nerds, you know, I don't like to just sit in those feelings. I hate it. (laughs) I I can't, I can't do that. So normally I have to find a way to like, I'm doing something about the problem, right? I'm out there speaking on it. I'm, I'm holding a group. Like we're doing a thing (laughs) during COVID. I wasn't allowed to do that. So I had to sort of sit back and go, what does resistance look like? when you can't march in the streets with everyone else, you can't start a group, you can't do a thing, you know, you can yell into the void on Twitter only so much before that starts draining you too, because you never know if it's getting anywhere. And it's, and so it's been this weird year of me learning just how much sort of seasons of rest and seasons of creating like seemingly frivolous things are an act of resistance in and of themselves, right? Like I felt so guilty for a while that I had growing food too before. And most of those beds have now just been taken over by flowers because I have all kinds of flowers that I wanted to grow for these arrangements that I make now. And in the beginning I thought, what a waste, right? Like we're in a pandemic for crying out loud and you're taking out food plants and you're putting in flowers. Like those are not useful. Like how can you justify that? And yet it's been such a process this year of learning that sometimes just creating space for beauty, right. Mm. And finding a way to channel that energy into something that doesn't seemingly serve a practical, pragmatic purpose. Like that's such an act of resistance in and of itself. And for me as a disabled person, I feel like it's an important act of resistance because it specifically says, let's step outside of this paradigm of defining everything by its pragmatic usefulness, right? Because that's so much of the core of what ableism is from the get-go is you're just not as useful to capitalism or as useful as society as society to society as we define it. 
as other people and other bodies and other neurotypes are. And so in a way, like the garden was such a tangible way with the flowers for me to say, sometimes it's okay to Mm. make actual physical space in my yard for things that serve no pragmatic purpose. There is nothing that I can eat out of these plants. There is nothing that I can do with them. They're not medicinal herbs. Like, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. they grow for a year or things like tulip bulbs, right? They literally grow for a season and then they all go into the compost pile and I have to buy all new ones. And part of me is so ingrained in our culture to feel like that's a waste. That's a waste. Like, unless you are debt free, right. And you have no, bills, <laughs> that is not a responsible use of your time and your money and, and, and your spoons. Like you should not be using your energy on that when you have such limited energy. And yet it was so freeing and healing in a really radical way for me this year to say, we don't have to define everything by whether or not it's pragmatic. It doesn't have to have a you know, specifically defined purpose to be justified. Like it's an active resistance to say there's space for beauty just because, just because I like it, just because it's a beautiful thing, just because I can post a picture of these flowers on Twitter and somebody's day might be brightened. And so, yes, I don't have space for my peas this year because I planted sweet peas instead and they're toxic, but they're beautiful and that's okay. I'm allowed to do that. There's a lot to be said about because flowers and gardening is an art. There's a huge art form that goes around that. And I have, um, I'm an artist, I have an art degree, studying art, whatever. But art is the most full form of resistance that there has been historically. Mm -hmm. Society has progressed because of art. People can come into their full selves through art in a way that people don't understand. Like there's art in the way that your house is built. The way that you arrange your home is an Mm. art. And if you don't find joy in that, there are studies that show that you like lack joy or happiness or whatever if your home is not arranged to your liking. Mm. There is a lot to be said about art not being a waste. There is no waste in art. Art is fruitful in ways that we can't even see in the physical in the now because I mean studying art you see all these art movements that progressed not just like the next form of art it was that progressed society that progressed women's rights that progressed the civil rights movement in America art is the most avid form of resistance and I think that it is very lovely that you're using your gardening as that form of art um, especially as somebody with a disability Uh, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about your disability and your journey towards becoming an advocate? It's interesting that you would ask that because when you were talking about your experience earlier, I was like, wow, does some of this sound familiar? Um, (laughs) It's not surprising to me that they tell you you have fibromyalgia or that you can't get a real clear diagnosis for things because that was my story for a long time too. Um, took me 15 years, 15 years of worsening disability and symptoms to get correctly diagnosed. Um, And it turned out that for 15 years, I had Lyme disease, absolutely ravaging my insides. Um, And when you let a bacterial infection and a whole bunch of viral co-infections, because ticks tend to carry a lot of things at once. So um, it's not usually just Lyme. There's a lot of other stuff that goes with that. 
when you let that stuff run rampant in your system for 15 years, some of that damage, even though you can get rid of the lime, some of that damage is not reversible. Mm-hmm. So lime is literally a little corkscrew shaped bacteria um, called a spirosat. And that's important because it, it literally like burrows like a corkscrew into tissue and just hangs out and hides there. Just why it's so notoriously hard to get an accurate test, because if it's not floating around in your blood that day, they're not going to catch it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has to be the specific tissue that they test to get it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in my case, they weren't even testing for it. So I can't even blame it on that. Like they didn't even try. They didn't even consider it. Welcome to being a woman in this country in medicine, because sexism in medicine is real. And I, you know, and I have the privilege of being white. So I don't even have to live at the intersection of being both a woman and a woman of color, right? There's the odds of getting diagnosed then studies don't lie. Like it's painfully low, painfully low. Uh, But it still took me, even as a white woman, it took me 15 years to get someone to take me seriously. And I had to fight tooth and nail the whole stretch of the way. It was like, maybe you're just depressed or maybe you're just dramatic. Can you like attention? Uh, You know, maybe you should just lose some weight. That was the big one. Love that. Uh, It was always sort of some combination of you're fat and depressed. Mm -hmm. And it never dawned on them that maybe I was fat and tired because I was sick not that I was sick because I was fat and tired. Mm-hmm. Um, so I finally got diagnosed with Lyme, but unfortunately there's damage to my heart. There's damage to my neurological systems. There's damage to my nerves that just won't ever be undone. So mm-hmm. I have a um, very dynamic disability. Um, when we say dynamic in disability community, we mean, you know, you may see me on one day and be like, I don't see anything at all. You seem you know, just like everybody else. And you may see me on another day and my tremor is really bad and I'm spasming and I can't find my words because my aphasia is all over the place and I need someone to help me hold my cup. And like, it's pretty obvious then that I'm not okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it varies a lot for me day to day, week to week, month to month. But, you know, I'm just glad that I have an answer now as to what's going on. Because again, it's that, it's that gaslighting, right? You can know that there's something wrong with you, but when everybody around you every single day says there's not, it gets to you eventually. You do start to doubt yourself. A hundred percent. I feel really like aware of what a privilege it is in this country to have a diagnosis. Like that's not a thing that's accessible to a lot of people. So even when we talk about healthcare and what people should and shouldn't do, when we talk about mental health and treatment that people should get, like just having a diagnosis is a barrier that is just not accessible to a lot of people and never will be. So Mm -hmm. if we're expecting, you know, it's like these ideas of people think the ADA, right. Means that if you're disabled, like you should show some kind of paperwork or like prove it and then they'll have to accommodate you. And like, yeah, but step one is you have to be able to prove that you have something mm-hmm. diagnosable. And that's, that's a barrier that a lot of people will never meet for 15 years. You know, if I had asked for accommodations and they had said, why do you need them? I wouldn't have had an answer for them mm-hmm. because my doctors think I'm crazy and dramatic. That's I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. So it was really hard to listen to you say that because I felt for you, like it was like a flashback for me. of 
really hard for women to get diagnosed in this country. And I'm really sorry that you're experiencing that right now. It's not fair. Yeah, it's a huge, my partner and I actually have a lot of like tension about it because he's a tall white man who can have whatever he wants. Um, And he's trying to like say, you should keep going to the doctor and blah, blah, blah. And I like in therapy, it came up and I was like, I don't think you understand how much of an emotional toll it is to go to the Mm. doctor and try to get a diagnosis. Like, do you think, I know that I come off as like this badass who loves fighting with people or whatever, but like, do you think that I want to have to convince a doctor that I'm in pain? Mm. Like, I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, I went to the emergency room, which was very scary because I mean, COVID or whatever, but I woke up at 3 a.m. and my whole body was on fire. Like my nerves were on fire, my muscles were spasming. I was, I couldn't sleep and I couldn't even sit still. Like I was in so much pain and I had to go to the ER and I had male doctors and they said, well, you're not pregnant and you don't have the flu. So here's some Tylenol. And I was sitting there laying there like in so much pain to the it was like at the point of that pain where like you can't even like comprehend it anymore it's not even phasing you anymore because it's just so overwhelming and my dad was I my dad was on his way because my dad's always been a huge advocate for my health because he kind of has figured out something's wrong with this kid and um he was like they haven't done any blood tests they haven't done anything they just gave you Tylenol and he's like you need to ask for this and so sitting there I'm like hey you're not gonna run any tests like I can't function and it wasn't until I asked for tests that they're like well I guess we can just give you some steroids and that was the extent of what I got and it was it took I was there for three hours just to get some steroids granted they helped but that's not the point right like my dad is listening to this episode his cheeks are so red because he just he hates the I'm just gonna give them a steroid answer for things I can just imagine him getting all fired up like that's lazy medicine well right because like shouldn't you try to find out what's happening before you prescribe a steroid I understand that like people want drugs right but I'm not in there asking for morphine I'm not in there asking for opioids I just want to know what's wrong I didn't ask for anything but what is wrong And that's kind of been the journey ever since I've had to keep going back and keep going back and go to specialist after specialist after specialist until you get to the end of the line at the rheumatologist. And they're like, sounds like fibromyalgia to me. Have you tried acupuncture? That's like the catch all diagnosis, right? We don't know what's wrong with you. So it's chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. Like that's Mm -hmm. just, it's code for, we don't know. So here you go. That's, that's a diagnosis. And I have the problem of having chronic nerve pain as well as muscular pain. So like my hands often don't really function. And if I hit any part of my body, the pain radiates for days. And sometimes I have to walk with a cane. It's pretty intense. And I mean, I try to play it off because it makes me feel better to have a little bit of humor in my life. But this is the state of having a disability in America and the world everywhere is you don't get answers. You don't have the privilege of answers, even if you have some level of privilege, right? Nobody gets answers. It's like a, the great almost equalizer, (laughs) almost. I think some of it is hard because there's, um, 
you know, having my undergrads in uh, biology and psychology. So I was actually studying pre-med and uh, you realize how much you are a, um, I would call it an investigator. So like my friends, a lot of my friends are in the medical field and, and, you know, my dad is, and my mom is, and actually most of my family. And you realize how much of it is um, our best guess, right? But I think we've been taught so often to hear our best guess as the answer and not to like believe our own bodies. I'm thinking about both of you as you were going through that first bit of, well, something's not right. And then you go and it's like, it's depression and it's, which depression is a real thing. The truth is, is like causation doesn't necessarily mean we negate that. Like, even if it is that someone has chronic fatigue syndrome, they have chronic fatigue. Like there is, there is no amount of hoping that you will get energized. It's going to energize you. There is no amount. And, and even just like, um, for myself, when I was my long-term, I got COVID in November, my long-term effects were until Mm. very recently, at 4 p.m., I it was like being wiped, like out of all. And my mom has um, been diagnosed with both with fibromyalgia and a chronic fatigue syndrome, which again, as a nurse, she's like, yeah, that's what we say to people when we don't know what's wrong with them. Like, okay, I get it. You don't know. Um, and so she, <laughs> I said to her, I, I think I called Josie and my mom and I was like, if this is what it's like, I gotta tell you, the you guys are doing great because how do you get like, how do you keep going? Cause I know no one in my life was like, I was given so many months where people were okay with me having COVID symptoms. And then after that time, they're like, yeah, I, oh, I that's can't, a word. right. I can't like now Sarah. Yeah. You're over. But like, yeah. you've, had, you've had your months. Are you better yet? Are you better yet? Yeah. And you're like, and I, I felt the urge to hide and, and lie about it and be like, yeah, no, no, no. Like, yeah, I just, you know, it's been a, I didn't sleep well last night, but then like, I think we do this thing where we just want everyone to be back to what we consider quote unquote, like normal. And so like, we're going to give you grace until like, you're, you're not going back to normal really inconveniences us. And it's all a, it's all a realization of the fear that all of us possess. Like, what if that happens to me? And we may yes. not even know that we're doing that. And I think that we have to like almost have these moments where like to imagine like your body gets used to pain. Like uh, the truth of the matter with both you and Josie is that your bodies have gotten used to functioning in a level of pain that means that until your body is in extreme pain, having to yell at you with a fiery body pain (laughs) to the point of like, no, like you can't keep going. That's when you feel it. And I think we just forget that people are existing with this thing that is hidden because Mm -hmm. you don't quote unquote look disabled. However, we want to decide the markers are in that, right? Whether it's mental or not, doesn't change that it's real. And I think that's the part, you know, it's all in their head. It's like, if my brain is firing that my entire body is on like actually in pain, my entire body is still in pain, (laughs) even if it's my brain that's causing it to do that. Um, Yeah. It's interesting because I have a few tattoos and people are, always, and I have them in pretty painful spots. Yeah, you do. And people are always like, oh my gosh, did it hurt? And I was like, no, I didn't really feel it until, really. until yeah. the end when it started like burning because it would pass over. And I was like, and I always felt like, oh, I must have a really great pain. And I do, but it's like later on, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> the amount of pain that my body is used to is not okay. 
but like you were saying Sarah my mom when I I went to my mom's house for whatever reason after um I had my diagnosis like that appointment with the diagnosis and she was like oh okay well then now you know what it is so it's fine right and I was like you realize that I was handed something that is lifelong like this they told me that essentially that this is the rest of your life there is nothing we can do to alleviate your pain you just have to deal with it for the rest of your life every day every minute every hour you will be in pain sorry (laughs) it's um it's heavy and all I can do is kind of laugh about it but Stephanie how have you like I don't know. Like, I can't imagine being an advocate when being in so much pain, probably because I haven't really reconciled all this with myself. (laughs) Yeah. Is it like a driving force for you? So again, I'm a seven. (laughs) I don't like to acknowledge my pain or sit in my pain or sit in silence. Like it's just the worst thing in the world to me. I have to have something playing in the background, something to do. Um, And it's funny because people that know me are often surprised to find out I'm a seven. They're very like, you don't, you know, you seem very uh, like an eight, like you just want to go out and justice everything. You don't seem like someone who's all party all the time. And it took me a long time and a lot of therapy to figure out that for me, my version of finding a bright side is very different than other people in that I I have to kind of take my pain and take what's happening to me and like repurpose it and be like, but here I'm using it for good because I'm doing this with it and I'm doing that with it. And so I have to sort of check myself and my motives sometimes in that I think there's a lot of healthiness of being in our stories, right? I'm a big believer that if you can't put skin on your theology, then it's not theology worth having, right? Like our Mm. stories are theology Um, and sharing those stories and bringing people into them. Like there's a reason that the gospel story is God came down, you know, and did incarnation, right? Like he came down and put on skin and put on flesh and walked around with us. I think that means something. And so I'm a big believer of like, Hey, take your story and use it. But on the flip side I'm learning very much that again some of it is that underlying I have to find pragmatism right I have to find its usefulness I have to justify its existence by how is it useful so I think especially when you come up in certain kinds of white evangelicalism (laughs) there's sort of this idea of like I need to slap an answer on everything right like So why did this bad thing happen to me? And so I think for me, for years, the temptation was to try and turn that story into so that I could be an advocate and go do all these things. And that's why God made me sick. And it took me a long time to learn that that's a really messed up theology. It's gross. Uh, No, it's not good. (laughs) It's not healthy. And so now there's a lot of trying to find a balance, right? There's there's a reality when you live in any marginalized identity that you feel the sense of urgency because I'd love to say that if I don't fight the fight that 
there will be abled people that pick it up and fight it for us, but that's not what I've seen. So there is a sense of urgency of like, we have to fight because our lives depend on it. But I'm trying, and again, it's like back to the garden. It is so much of a journey this year of me learning how to find space to say, it doesn't all have to be on me all the time. I don't have to make a reason for everything. That even if I stopped being a vocal advocate, even if I wasn't out there telling my story of disability or speaking about that lived experience all the time, that's okay, right? Like it's okay that it would be all right for me to just sit in the pain and say, this sucks. And I don't like my body feeling this way. And it's not serving some kind of meta magical purpose. And I'm not out there turning it into a good thing. That's okay. That's allowed. Um, and maybe me taking space from, yes, I, you know, COVID forced me to stop going speaking places and, and stop writing as much. And maybe that's a really good thing that I got to take a step back and say, even if I'm not turning my pain into purpose all the time, it's okay. I'm allowed to just accept the pain. I'm allowed to say, I don't like this and it doesn't serve a purpose. And I think it makes God sad. And I don't think he wanted this for me or my body. And that's okay. I'm allowed to have space for that sometimes. So I'd love to have a clear answer for you, but I think I'm working through a lot of it right now. It's interesting. I think there's a form of bypassing that we've been taught to bypass the pain. Um, we've been taught that in so many, there's so many different, uh, you know, from the TV shows we watch, but also from the churches that some of us grew up in also from the experience of living within a female identity. Like we've been taught, like you got to make meaning out of the thing. So it's like, but what happens is then you, you go to that and you bypass the, like kind of the meat of it in some ways, like, yep. because you don't want to sit in it yourself. And, um, I think it's really wise to think, oh, maybe this has to do with the fact that sevens don't like to sit in it. I don't either. I'm a three. I want to make meaning out of it and I want everyone to be okay. And how do we get everyone? Everyone needs to be great. <laughs> um, and I think there is this really powerful permission and, and I, I hate that word. And yet it's come up a couple of times on our show. Um, people need to hear the permission that like, if you're not killing it like if you're not slaying suffering and needing to like power, turn it into purpose right away I think we misread sometimes like man's search for meaning and and think that he immediately got to the meaning it's like sometimes just the meaning is okay today my meaning is that I I'm gonna rest in that I'm frustrated in this and I and that has holy purpose as well um because yes. when we rush when we rush and I've seen it um I remember uh, right before the pandemic, uh, a pretty famous pastor um, actually was able to go through with suicide. And um, they, about a month in, had his wife speaking on stages. And I thought, oh, no, 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 yeah. no, no, no. You have just commodified like what she went through. And now you're trying to make her a victor. Like mm. we went through, like, yes, I'm going to become a suicide advocate. Great but a month, a month, like that just, where is our ability to let someone grieve and let our ability, like, like, yes, yeah, she can define mm -hmm. those things, but who are the people in her life who are going, man, it feels like maybe you should sit in this a little and not like sit in it. Cause we like to see you suffer. But I feel like so many people pulled her because they didn't 
they didn't want to have to face it, like pulled her into the part where, you know, now she can say, and now I'm an advocate. And these are all the people we've, we've been able to stop from, you know, and I think that's the, the gift. I think of what I've seen your work do a lot is for you to say, I can go this far. And then I, I realize that some of the boundaries I'm having to put around myself are like, it's time for me to go to the garden. <laughs> like I need to just go reconnect with myself and sit in it. And I think that takes, that takes a lot of courage for ourselves because it's really easy to bypass all the pain and, and where we're at. So mm. thank you for doing that. Yes. Thank you. I mean, I really, I, sometimes I have to like just play with the word fibromyalgia on my tongue because it is the diagnosis mm. that I have and it doesn't sound very good to me, but it's also like this added weight of in my community, there's no such thing as chronic pain. <laughs> there's no such thing as um, invisible things, you know, like, and I grew up in a Pentecostal church where they said that if you're a real Christian, then you won't have any of these chronic things. Um, if you're a real Christian, if you believe hard enough, it'll all go away. Yeah. And I mean, growing, I have depression, so that was already really annoying growing up. And now it's just even more like, I don't think that's how it works. Um, yeah, it's in my, in the Latin community, it's really hard for my parents to come to terms with it where I'll get to their house and they're like, why are you so cranky? And I was like, because I hurt, I'm in pain. So it should be enough that I'm here or whatever. And a lot of times people, I've had to like accept that people are not going to believe me. People yeah. will not believe me. And I have to just keep moving on, you know? And to some extent, educate on a micro level, my own community and the people around me and say like, hey, sometimes people have disabilities that are just a little bit different than what you think they are. And maybe that's okay. Yeah, the invisible thing I think is a really hard, a hard piece. Um, yeah. You know, like Stephanie, you're saying like some days it's obvious, right? Like mm -hmm. there's a tick, there's a whatever. Uh, and then some days it's just not. And I think yeah. there are the reality of how many people walk around or don't walk around or just are, are living with something that, you know, we have a tough time seeing. And so even um, I'm grateful for both of you allowing people to hopefully have their eyes opened a little bit to something that so many people are um, walking around with and unable and, and not, they don't even know what the diagnosis is maybe, um, or, you know, have been gaslit when they go and, you know, I've heard Lyme disease stories of people, like yeah. people not believing Lyme disease. <laughs> it's like, what? Like, well, yeah, the medical community is still debating whether or not chronic Lyme is even a thing. I mean, there are a lot of doctors that will tell you 30 days of antibiotics and you're fine. And so then you go back and they're like, whatever's going on now, it can't be Lyme because you don't test positive for Lyme anymore. So you're fine. It's all in your head now. You're just so used to being sick that now you're making yourself sick because you don't know how to be healthy actually had a doctor tell me that that was real fun. You don't know how just, to be healthy. No, because I've just got so used to my identity being wrapped up in being sick that now I was making myself sick, but that, you know, I'm testing pot. I'm not testing positive anymore. So I must be fine. It's all just in my head. Oh, it's, friends. Medicine just mm. does not have a grasp on this, right? There's so much like therapy work that we all collectively need to do as a society to get our head around the ideas that sometimes this too does not pass right mm -hmm. sometimes that's not how it works like we just 
gosh, growing up in, this is basically the bulk of what my book is about, right? But like growing up in white evangelicalism, you get this, I like to call it sitcom syndrome, right? Like everything is the 30 minute chunk where it has a very clear beginning and a very clear end. And if you didn't see last week's episode, that's fine. It doesn't matter because they're all disconnected chunks where you learn whatever the lesson is. And no matter what goes wrong, Sunday school, we know that by the end, Danny Tanner will come in and sit on the bed and the music will play and everybody will be fine. And it'll be wrapped up in a neat little bow. And then we'll move on to the next thing. And we'll never talk about that again. It's like, it never happened. It's all compartmentalized. I feel like we were sold these testimonies over and over and over again of, I used to have this thing, you know, I did drugs, but then Jesus, and now it's all better. And I've moved on to whatever I'm doing now. And we expect life to work that way. So Mm. when you get hit with something that's, you know, long-term chronic lifelong disability, it really blows you out of that whole metric because you don't, you don't know where that fits. You don't know how to do. And like you described earlier, Sarah, people like basically, are you better now? Yep. They don't, they don't know what to say. They don't know how to just sit in it and accept grief and accept pain and accept mm-hmm. present tense testimonies instead of we'll circle back to me when you figured out what all this is for and there's a bow on it. And then you can get up in front of the church and tell your story, but until it's packaged, like we don't want to hear about it. Yeah. Right. But- Going back to the seasons, uh, people want it to be like the Midwest, spring, summer, fall, winter. But chronic pain is really just California. It's, the same. <laughs> it's just, it is what it is. It's the same. <laughs> Never ends. <laughs> it's more like Chicago where one day it's great. And then the next day is winter again, but then yeah. you're the summer the next day. I feel mm-hmm. like it's Oregon. Our running joke here is like, if you don't <laughs> like the weather, just wait 30 minutes. Yeah. Right? I had to learn how to layer when I moved here because one day it it's raining and then it's 90 <laughs> degrees and you're like, I don't know what's happening, but mm-hmm. I'm just going to roll with it <laughs> in 30 minutes. It'll change back again. So yep. I think there's so much too of the lesson of like, you just make your best guest in the garden because you don't know what the weather is going to do to it. And mm-hmm. you have to just sort of be um, like, it, everything's dynamic. And I think so often in church spaces in um, like you said, we've, we've been sold the sitcom and the sitcom hasn't worked where everything is not dynamic. It's like, this is what it's supposed to look like. And I, you know, I think about so many of the stars that grew up in, you know, creating the sitcoms, how much their lives, because they didn't look like the things they were playing on TV were incredibly painful because there's this huge, um, Mm. like difference between what we're presenting and what life can really look like. And then you have people who, when they hit the things that are real and part of life and not, um, then it's a huge problem. Like I can't, how could this happen to me? And the truth is the scary part is it could happen to any of us. And so when we're so afraid like, as it's almost like this gift of normalization is like, when you guys share your story, then it's like, oh, this can happen to anyone. And that's not to like put fear into people, but it's so that when it happens to me, I don't think that I'm special in the sense that there is something uh, between God and I, there's something between myself and I, there's something dramatically wrong with me that I could end mm. up in this. Like I've been kicked off the show. <laughs> like they've written me out of the script because yeah. I no longer fit in that like 
story of there's a beginning, there's a middle, there's a lesson and an end, you know? And I think mm. it's just scary for all of us. Our fears will be written off. There was a Some thing of us I are. wrote in my book where I was saying that, like not to get all bible but you know that thing in Ecclesiastes where they're talking about like, there's the time for every season under heaven. And I remember like always hearing it as if there is a season for this, just this one thing, right? And right. then there's this season over here for this. And so much of my journey into learning how to have a healthier, like more robust theology of suffering and grief and lament and living in these things in the present tense was learning that there is nothing in those passages that say that they're separate self-contained seasons, right? No. It's not like this is the time to kill and this is the time to rejoice and they're totally mutually exclusive. Nothing in that says that. And in life, like that is so rarely how it works. And again, it's like the garden this last year, right? I living through this pandemic, I have had probably some of the lowest lows of my mental health. I've had more anger and like visceral keeps me from functioning anger than I've ever had in my life in the last year. And yet that was the time, right? To step back and make these flower arrangements and mm. grow beautiful things and send money I don't have on more plants I don't need and say, that's okay. Like, even if it's a frivolous thing, that's okay. That's what it took for me to get through today. And better this than drugs, right? Like everyone has their thing. I would Amen. define that as not frivolous. It's okay to feel lots of things at once. Mm -hmm. And that so much of the garden for me was finding a way to say, I don't have to wait until this gets better to find space for me to be happy. Mm -hmm. I am still really angry. Now I'm all emotional. And I'm still really hurt by the things that I saw people say and do this last year. And I still haven't figured out how to move forward and how those relationships are going to work coming out of this, right? Seeing what I've seen this last year. I don't think forgetting is the healthy answer, but I'm going to have to figure out how to do some forgiving. And I don't know what that looks like yet. And yet I've also never given myself space to have beauty and frivolity and sort of just pointless enjoyment and rest and seasons of not making a paycheck at all and still spending money on things I don't need. Right. Like I've never done that the way I did this last year. It's just very much a both. And it was a way to say resistance for me looks like saying I can find space to be happy right now. Even when the circumstances are the hardest, I think I've faced in my life. And it's just both and that we are made to contain multitudes, that those seasons are overlapping. They are not mutually exclusive. They all happen at once. And it's just sort of learning how to step back and say, it doesn't have to look any particular way. I can feel all these things at the same time. And there's just space for all of it. Uh, I love that. Well, Stephanie, we are in the midst of such a great conversation, but we um, end our conversations, our moments. Hopefully this has caused, I hope a lot of people to think, hopefully Josie uh, helped you see that you are not alone in all that you've gone through, but 
um, we love to say, what is like one thing, one tangible thing, whatever it might be, by the way, it could totally be go plant a flower, but what is one <laughs> thing that people can do for, to make space for themselves or others? And you can take that question in any direction you want to. I, I think the big one that I walked away with this last year is I think it's healthy to find a hobby that you are not necessarily good at and that you did not monetize mm -hmm. or turn into a thing, right? Mm -hmm. I think, especially if we're working to unwind ableism and we're becoming more aware of that in spaces, there's something so powerful about saying it's okay to enjoy things that you're not the best at. It's okay. Mm -hmm. You don't have to work at it. You don't have to take lessons. You don't have to hustle. It doesn't have to be something you can turn into a side income. Like it's okay to just say, this is a thing I like doing because it just brings me joy. And for no other reason than I just like it. And it mm -hmm. doesn't have to serve a purpose. There's just space for enjoyment. So pick up a hobby, find something that you're not necessarily good at and just enjoy it. I, Amen. That's my favorite one. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. It's so good. Well, Stephanie, where can folks find you? What, um, where can they find your books? What, what would you like to share with folks? What can we promote for you? Um, if you go to stephanietatewrites.com, it's kind of a landing page that it'll take you to links to where you can buy my book. It'll take you to my social media. There's even my Twitter on there. If you want the feistier, spicier hot takes, um, you can just go to Instagram and look at the pretty flower pictures. It's all there on the website. So stephanietatewrites.com. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for, so much for bringing us to your garden. Um, I love it. I would love to I see it. I wish I could person. take you on a tour, but. Oh, I'm, I'm going to take you up on that. I would love to see it. I love <laughs> gardens. I get a lot of requests for a video of that. So I may have to suck it up and do it at some point here in the yes. near future. That would be yes. amazing. Josie, where can folks find us? You can find us at makingspacespodcast.com or on Making Spaces Podcast on Instagram. You can find Sarah at Rev Sarah Heath on Instagram and me at Josie Takes the World. Amazing, guys. Thanks so much for joining us. And we'll see you next week where we will be saving a space for you. Bye. Bye. This has been an Irreverent Media Podcast.